Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Greetings, comrades. Today, we shall go back to the year 1917, starting with October 27th, and we shall take a look at the Civil War and various other problems that were faced by the Bolshevik government at the end of this year and the beginning of 1918. We shall also touch upon an issue that shall get its own episode in the future, namely how and why the Baltic states, Finland and other ex-Russian Empire's territories got their independence, which was often a bloody and a difficult process. And, obviously, we will read some of the fine, nice things that our best buddy and finest comrade Lenin had written at the time, to give a political perspective at what's going on. So, continuing from the previous episodes, let's work on a timeline for the basis of all of this, and, as usual, I'll touch on the more interesting topics in detail once they appear. Now, just to recap, because we have had PDRP before, and we had our... Women's Day special episode, where we left off was when the Winter Palace was captured in the October 26th at 2 a.m., and the Congress of Soviets declared a new government, and the Congress of Soviets declared a new government, and created a lot of lot of public public statements about, you know, how newspapers shall be censored, uh, they, they made this decree on peace and decree on land, and they just basically started to form this new government. And Kerensky, earlier, had escaped. So, see, uh, in October 27, which is the very next day after the Soviets had proclaimed victory for the revolution in Petrograd, and the very next day, Kerensky and General Krasnov, together with the units of 3rd Cavalry Corps, actually started their drive towards Petrograd, that is, St. Petersburg. During the day, and and uh, very early morning of the next day, they seize the cities of Gachkina and Tsarskoye-Shela and capture the Pulkovo Hills. By the end of the night, however, Soviet power, with other revolutions, uh, which, uh, which are organized by the localized party groups there, is established in Minsk, Kronstadt, Ivano-Voznesnevsk, Lugansk, Kazan, Rostov-na-Donu, Yekaterinburg, Revel, 
which is modern-day Tallinn, by the way, Samara and Saratov. And this Revel part here is very important because the same things happened later in, in Latvia. Because the, in these places, the Soviets took over and kind of created their own Soviet-ish governments without much support from the population in general uh, outside of these places, outside of Russia, that is. On October 29th, the Junkers, this white support group, launched an insurrectionary attempt within Petrograd. They, they attempt to kind of grab the power back. But they are quickly defe- defeated by the Red Guard on the very same day. Meanwhile, the Vigzel, which is the executive committee of railwaymen, posted a demand that there should be a united socialist government which could be then composed of Mensheviks, SRs, the social, the socialist guys, the social democrats, and Bolsheviks. And until this would occur, they refused to transport food anywhere. Now, obviously, the, the rank and file guys, the, your average railway workers, do not agree on this matter, and food kind of trickles into the cities nonetheless. In a, in a strange twist of fate, Lenin himself, insists that really, well, nothing should be done. The rail workers themselves will resolve the issue. And they kind of did. Later in the January, the railway workers just decide to, you know, topple off their, their, their leading councils and just elect a new central committee for their organization. Two days later, on October 31st, the Soviet Revolution now wins in Baku. And they're now holding a total of 17 provincial capitals. Meanwhile, Red Guards confront General Krasnov's troops head-on, and after taking back the Pukovo hills outside of Petrograd, this opposition in Petrograd basically dissolves itself. There are no Marjunkas left there. One day later, in November the 1st, the Soviet Revolution now gains control of Tashkent. In the north, again, there are battles between the Red Guards and this uh, these white cavalry armies. And uh, General Krasnov is now taken prisoner, but Kerensky, our nice sly guy, he manages to escape once again. What happens next, and the very next day, however, is a bit surprising, as the Soviet government proclaims <clears throat> the Declaration of Rights of the Peoples of Russia which I shall read you now in full. The October Revolution of the workmen and peasants began under the common banner of emancipation. The peasants are being emancipated from the power of the landowners, for there is no longer the landowner's property right in the land. It has been abolished. The The soldiers and sailors are being emancipated from the power of autocratic generals, for generals will henceforth be elective and subject to recall. The working men are being emancipated from the whims and arbitrary will of the capitalists, for henceforth there will be established the control of the workers over mills and factories. Everything living and capable of life is being emancipated from the hateful shackles. Which is a very weird sentence, if you ask me. There remain only the peoples of Russia who have suffered and are suffering oppression and arbitrariness and whose emancipation must immediately be begun, whose liberation must be effected resolutely and definitely. 
During the period of Tsarism, the peoples of Russia were systematically incited against one another. The results of such a policy are known. Massacres and pogroms on the one hand, slavery of peoples on the other. There can and there must be no return to this disgraceful policy of instigation. Henceforth, the policy of a voluntary and honest union of the peoples of Russia must be substituted. In the period of imperialism, after the February Revolution, when the power was transferred to the hands of cadet bourgeoisie, the naked policy of instigation gave way to one of cowardly distrust of the peoples of, of Russia, to a policy of fault-finding and provocation, of, air quote, he uses air quotes here in this statement, <clears throat> of freedom and equality of peoples. The results of such a policy are known. The growth of national enmity, the impairment of a mutual trust. An end must be put to this unworthy policy of falsehood and distrust, of fault-finding and provocation. Henceforth, it must be replaced by an open and honest policy which leads to complete mutual trust of the people of Russia. Only as the result of such a trust can there be formed an honest and lasting union of the peoples of Russia. Only as the result of such a union can the workmen and peasants of the peoples of Russia be cemented into one revolutionary force able to resist all attempts on the part of the imperialistic annexationist bourgeoisie. Starting with these assumptions, the first Congress of Soviets in June this year proclaimed the right of the peoples of Russia to free self-determination. The second Congress of Soviets in October of this year reaffirmed this in inalienable right of the peoples of Russia more decisively and definitely. The united will of the Congresses, the councils of the People's Commissars resolved to base their activity upon the question of the nationalities of Russia as expressed in the following principles. Number one the equality and sovereignty of the peoples of Russia. 2. The right of the peoples of Russia to free self-determination, even to the point of separation and the formation of an independent state. 3. The abolition of any and all national and national religious privileges and disabilities. Number 4. The free development of national minorities and ethnographic groups inhabiting the territory of Russia. The decrees that follow from these principles will be immediately elaborated after the setting up of a commission of nationality affairs. In the name of the Russian Republic, <clears throat> and here, here interesting things happen, Chairman of the Council of People's Commissars, Vladimir Ulyanov, and quotes Lenin, and you know, you know him and he makes a nice entry, People's Commissar on Nationality Affairs, Josef Jugashvili, Stalin. Now, don't you find this um, extremely intriguing? <laughs> See, this decree deserves a little bit of um, explaining, because obviously, obviously, peoples all over the Russian Empire started thinking about, hey, so that means we can um, start leaving now. So at least in, in, well, but, at least in Latvia, they started, this is, this is where our idea about, hey, uh, we can just, you know, leave. We can use this confusion to create our own country. This is where the beginning of all of this became, begins. And this is, this, this'll happen, this'll happen soon enough. A year 1918 is when Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Finland, many others declare their independence. And then the battles begin. Because this decree does not actually mean that these people will then have their independent bourgeoisie government as they want. Oh, no, 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 no. As later will be explained by Stalin, 
What this decree meant is that, hey, uh, we are, we have a lot of civil war in our hands, so, um, you know, these people over there shall, we're gonna help them, but indirectly, just to look pretty and peaceful and nice, to set up their own uh, socialist governments, which can then be, you know, join up, join up uh, with us in the socialist Russia, it's gonna be fine. I'm gonna look awesome, we'll be legitimate and everything. And this also happens, because uh, I mentioned Revel previously. Because you see, the local socialists, which were here, obviously, because because the uh, Russian Empire was huge, at least here in Latvia. In Latvia, we had Peter Stuchka, who formed his own separatist socialist state around Daugavpils in the Latgala region, and started Red Terror there against the local bourgeoisie. But again, all these freedom fights shall get their own episode. But in short... Local so- local socialists create their own small cells and try to take over these places. Then there are then then there will be also civil wars in all these countries, sort of civil, sort of less civil. They can be described as civil. Well, in the Baltics, we often fought both the Red Guards and uh, remnants of the German army. But like I said, I shall get to this in due time. While, for example, in, in Poland, just fought Tuchachevsky with with his his uh, army in, later on. The thing is, this decree sort of backfired, because even though it looks very nice, specifically, and they stated blatantly in this degree, decree that um, they want, at the end, they want uh, revolutions ha- to happen all over the place, and they want the Soviets and the Bolsheviks to take power in all of these places, so that... Again, <clears throat> the workmen and peasants of the peoples of Russia be cemented into one revolutionary force. Able to resist all attempts of the part of the imperialist and vexationist bourgeoisie. Now, what actually happened in the Baltic states and in Poland was that, yeah, the bourgeoisie, which which was there called imperialist and vexationist, namely the more nationalistically, capitali- capitalistically-minded peoples, kind of decided to want their own independence. This decree was obviously translated by these people as they chose fit. But it's interesting that it appears at this time, because a lot of my sources state that, yeah, this was most likely an attempt to just, you know, free their hands a bit, give some give some more autonomy to the local cells, and kind of calm people down. But it was never really about the rights of people to create their own independent demo- democracies. It was always about the rights of people to create more socialist states in the places where, where they were living from the old Russian, Russian imperial territories. You know, more socialist states, more funding. Once they could get to this funding, that is. So, on the same day with this declaration, and, and everything about with this to the peoples, Declaration of the Rights of the Peoples of Russia, the very same day, uh, General Frunze leads the Red Guards of Petrograd, uh, additionally together with the sailors of the Black Fleet, and some Red Guard um, detachments from Ivanovno-Vorozhensk to reinforce the Moscow workers in the revolution. And Moscow being a huge and important city at the time, it's very important that they succeed, and they do. And this breaks the back of the counter-revolutionary forces there. And the next day, November the 3rd, the Kremlin in Moscow is now secured, which then ends the battle for Moscow. At the same time, there's uh, some strife and conflict in the Bolshevik party, where there turns out there's a minority which refuses to cooperate in the new government. Lenin then issues an ultimatum, either split and create a new party, or adhere to democratic centralism. 
Kamnyenev, Zinoviev, Rikov, Nogin, and some others, citing this issue among others, decide to leave the party. Then Svetlov is elected chairman of the All-Russian Central Executive Committee to replace Kamenev. Now, democratic centralism, by itself, I have to explain what this is, is this organizational method which was applied by the Bolsheviks when they made this whole revolution. It basically stated, democracy in discussion, centralism in action, with a kind of a strategy of building this so-called vanguard party. The concept was first explained by Lenin when he fought for centralism and against the kind of circle mentality of Russian revolutionaries prior to the formation of, of the Bolsheviks in 1901, but this term only came into kind of general use around this period in 1917. This organizational method, with which Lenin really had built up the Bolshevik party, was adopted from the past successes and failures of the working class movement, in these pre-World War I Russia conditions and in like in the 1905 revolution and others. For example, trade unions put leadership proposals to the vote at, at mass meetings and then used picket lines to enforce a majority decision. The rules of the Communist League and the International Work- Working Men's Association, which were there already when, when the Marx was active, were based on the same general principles. So, but it was Lenin who kind of coined this democratic centralism term and developed kind of these principles of disciplined mass working class political party. These are kind of the specific principles that you can argue inside the party, but on the outside you really present an an active united front. You never bring your your things outside of there. And Trotsky even wrote about this in, in 1937, no less, when he... When he wrote about uh, when he wrote the United States of America about the on democratic centralism and the regime, and this comes from <clears throat> from a United States internal bulletin in December 1937, uh, prior to the formation of the SVP, Socialist Workers Party in the United States. So this is this is his letter <clears throat> to to explain this term, which will become the backbone of of everything that's going on, and that which will concentrate the power in the hands of, of the Bolsheviks later on, and will then produce all this bureaucratic administration. To the editors of Socialist Appeal, United States of America. During the past months I have received letters in regard to the inner regime of a revolutionary party from several apparently young comrades unknown to me. Some of these letters complain about the lack of democracy in your organization, about the domineering of the leaders and the like. Individual comrades asked me to give, give a clear and exact formula on democratic centralism which would preclude false interpretations. It is not easy to answer these letters. Not one of my correspondents even attempts to demonstrate clearly and con- concretely with actual examples exactly wherein lies the violation of democracy. On the other hand, insofar as I, a bystander, can judge on the basis of your newspaper and your bulletins, the discussion in your organization is being conducted with full freedom. The bulletins are filled chiefly by representatives of tiny minority. I have been told the same holds true of your discussion meetings. The, dis- the decisions are not yet carried out. Evidently, they will be carried through at a freely elected conference. In what, then, could the violations of democracy have been manifested? This is hard to understand. And here, goes, here he, he goes on about, about what, what's going on all, all, all of these events and everything. 
And then he later in the letter says, Only a correct policy can guarantee a healthy party regime. This, this, it is understood, does not mean that the development of the party does not realize organizational problems as such. But it means that the formula for democratic centralism must inevitably find a different expression in the parties of different countries and in different stages of development of one and the same party. Democracy and centralism do not at all find themselves in an invariable ratio to one another. Everything depends on the concrete circumstances and the political situation in the country, on the strength of the party and its experience, on the general level of its members, on the authority the leadership has succeeded in winning. Before a conference, when the problem is one of formulating a political line for the next period, democracy triumphs over centralism. Now, but when the problem is political action, centralism subordinates democracy to itself. Democracy, again, asserts its rights when the party feels the need to examine critically its own actions. So, even Trotsky, later, when he was trying to guide the, the Socialist Workers' Party of the United States, basically says that, you know, yeah, you we can argue inside the party, but, uh, you know, when it comes to action, we must always follow the party leadership. And then, then the action is put in a way that, you know, you can debate some things until it's time to actually do something. Or something of that sort, because again, he states that a party is an active organism. It develops in the struggle with outside obstacles and inner contradictions. Because um, when you look up what this democratic centralism even means, and uh, it's hard to do, which I try to do for this episode, you understand that communists, even head communists of the revolution, such as Trotsky, do not really know a proper definition. It's like, yeah, you know, we, we debate some things and then uh, then we do what the leaders said anyways. And this this uh, will come in, in hand when we discuss the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which will begin soon enough. Uh, you see, in the timeline, and I'll skip ahead a bit, um, because within their efforts to, to kind of end World War One, the Soviet government started peace talks with the Axis powers in Brest-Litovsk in November 26th. And and this is this is why I want to connect this with this democratic centralism, because how Treaty of Brest-Litovsk operated was an interesting form of how this democratic centralism will then later be turned upon itself, and debates within the party shall be minimized, especially as soon as Lenin ceases to be in power and when when our good old friend Koba takes over. You see, this Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. It's obviously the one that brought brought the end of the war between Russia and Germany in 1918. And it was very severe. Which, by the way, the Germans were reminded of this, this harshness of this Brest-Litovsk Treaty when they later on com- would complain about the severity of the Treaty of Versailles, signed in June 1919. See, Lenin had ordered that the Bolshevik representatives sent to Brest-Litovsk to argue this treaty should get a very quick treaty from the Germans to bring about this end of the war, which they had postulated in their decree for peace, so that the Bolsheviks could concentrate to the work they needed to do in Russia itself, mainly winning the civil war and stomping out all counter-revolutionary activities. This start of the discussions is November 26th. It was mainly, it was mainly attempted to you know bring just just sign quickly papers, get out of the war, whatever they ask, give it give it to them. But it turns out that it was an organizational disaster. You see, representatives from the other allies of, of representatives from the allies from the other allies fighting with with Russia and fighting together with Russia, namely France and Britain, who were who were meant to have attended this, they they failed to show up. No one came, so Russia had to negotiate a peace settlement by by themselves. 
And after just one week of these talks, the Russian delegation left so that it would report to, you know, this all-Russian Central Executive Committee. And at this meeting, when they when they kind of went back to report what they have done there, then three views about the peace talks uh, kind of were, were presented in the Bolshevik hierarchy. <laughs> because this this is the democracy part of the democratic centralism which the Bolshevik party tried to adhere to. See, Trotsky himself believed that Germany would offer completely unacceptable terms to the Russians, and that this, this fact that they would give these completely unacceptable terms, would then cause the German workers to rise up in revolt against their leaders, and, you know, and in support of their Russian compatriots. This rebellion would basically, uh, in turn, spark a revolution of workers worldwide. Trotsky was a permanent revolutionary, and the only thing he really thought about was this massive world revolution. Now, why did he believe this? Uh, obviously, it comes from Marxism and, and like this dialectical inevitability, which was presented in, in these views and their firm beliefs on the very basis of this communist ideology. To Marx, the world revolution was inevitable, and, and Trotsky and Lenin firmly believed it to be so. And they really thought the that this class, um, like, you know, the feeling that you have for the members of your class was strong enough, and the hatred for war would be strong enough in Germany, that they would actually have this major revolution in support of their Russian brethren. Which is an interesting view. But... Uh, this differs, but but Trotsky believed that this revolution would happen right now, on the spot, and that, that this is this is just happening like next week. Lenin believed that this world revolution would occur, but over many years. And what Russia needed now, according to Lenin, was an end to the war with Germany, and so he obviously wanted peace at any cost, like we mentioned before. But Kamenev which would later which would later leave off believed that uh, these german workers you know they, they would rise up anyway trotsky so uh, unlike trotsky he he believed that you know these these workers would rise up cuz kamenev has even a stronger set of beliefs similar to trotsky's he believed the german germans would rise up anyway so why bother so on january 21st 1918 the Bolshevik hierarchy, the, the higher-ups met. And interestingly enough, even though we have this democratic centralism here, only 15 out of the 63 people in this meeting supported Lenin's viewpoint. 16 voted for Trotsky, who at this point wanted to wage a <clears throat> so-called holy war against all militaristic nations, including Germany. And uh, 32 voted in favor of a revolutionary war against the Germans, which would, as they believed at the time, uh, kind of caused this workers' rebellion in Germany. So this whole issue went to the party's central committee. This body rejected the idea of revolutionary war and supported the idea of Trotsky, of a massive mega-revolution everywhere. Trotsky decided that he would offer the Germans Russia's demobilization and an end to the war, but would not conclude a peace treaty with them. By doing this, he hoped to buy, buy time. In fact, he sort of got the opposite. Because on February 18th, 1918, the Germans, kind of tired of the Bolsheviks' procrastination and this democracy, which couldn't really represent itself as centralism by this point, 
restarted their advance into Russia. And, due to massive chaos, resistance to the Bolsheviks, and just huge amounts of nonsense and craziness going on there, because when I'm saying Soviets took power in that city, uh, previously on the timeline, what you mean is chaos is erupting, and these guys just step up and say, well, we now have the power. But even though there's a lot of opposition still going on all through the Russia, um, especially, you know, there are, there are a lot of groups there. For example, in south of Russia, Kornilov leads resistance to the Bolsheviks, uh, based, basing himself in, in Rostov, where many former officers who had survived World War I went to join him. And uh, in the lower Volga, the socialist revolutionaries who had been members of the dispersed constituent assembly, they also, under the leadership of Chernov, uh, created their own resistance to this. There was also a monarchist, Colonel Semyov, who established his own autonomous government in Transbaikalia, where he basically became a warlord and created a lot of problems for them. And in Manchuria, uh, a certain general, Horvat, who had been the Tsar's military government in this region, formed another conservative establishment. And then Finland in the 1918 will have their own civil war with the the, the Finnish whites led by Mannerheim, which will win, because he was helped by Germans, and at one point Lundernorf uh, even kind of thought about putting a German prince in power once the whites had won, but that never happened. But with his German help, the Finnish whites pushed back the Finnish uh, the Finnish Russell border, even so close to Petrograd that it was almost within their artil- artillery range. Uh, and the civil war in, Finla- in Finland will happen between the Finnish socialists and Finnish reds and kind of the Finnish whites who wanted a more bourgeoisie and democratic government. And the Civil War happened, by the way, after the Central Committee of, of uh, these Bolsheviks had already admitted the Soviet, the, the Finnish independence, even though their government at that point was completely bourgeoisie, and uh, they would they would kind of accept their independence in December 31st of 1917. So yeah, Russia is having problems all over the place, and we'll we'll get into an interesting interesting fact, which. Uh, Travis J. Dow from the Bohemian podcast will tell you more about this. Oh my, I'm, I'm getting on tangents. But yeah, there was also this, uh, the, these certain Czech prisoners of war who had apparently joined the Russian army after being captured from the Austrian army. And they joined the ranks of Kerensky and these Czech, le- Czech legion guys were also very much responsible for Kerensky's initial successes in the civil war. This Czech legion they fought the Germans as a separate unit until the leadership of Masaryk, until, yeah, this Treaty of Brest-Litovsk that I'm talking about, this that ended this fighting. Trotsky afterwards would give them his agreement that they had permission to travel through Russia to the Western Front so that they could continue their campaign against the Germans. The one rule of this this agreement was that the Czechs had to leave their weapons behind. But as soon as the first units of the Czechs surrendered their weapons, the Red Guards just shot them. But this proved to be an error, as it became obvious that the other men could not trust what Trotsky had promised them. And the Czech Legion itself had been made up of very seasoned soldiers with a lot of fighting experience. So they captured the strategic city of Simbirsk, and between May 1918 and August 1918, they captured so much territory that they controlled the Trans-Siberian Railway from Simbirsk to Vladivostok. The Czechs will prove a serious problem to Trotsky and the Communists, as the Communist military 
commander in the civil commander in civil war was was Trotsky, and he proved that the Czechs were really a thorn in his side. His the Trotsky's task of defeating the whites was made a lot more difficult by these Czechs. Interestingly enough, if Trotsky had kept his word and let him move freely out of Russia, this problem wouldn't have even occurred. And interestingly enough, the Politburo, later on, blamed this solely and just purely on Trotsky. And guess what? The man who posted these criticisms on Trotsky and who led all these critics was none other than Josef Stalin. And here we can here we can see also how how Stalin is already slowly grabbing more and more power and uh, discrediting other members of the revolution. And weirdly enough, this success of the Czech Legion also may have well kind of sealed the fate of the royal family, which we, again, shall speak about a bit later. See, they had been sent by Kerensky to Toboysk in Siberia, where they were under house arrest. And, as the Czechs had the power to threaten Toboysk, they were brought back to Yekaterinburg. However, in the early stages of the civil war, the whites threatened the city. And, while the royal family was alive, they could obviously inspire the whites. Thus, Lenin ordered their execution, and the whole family was killed in July 16, 1918. But, yeah, we shall get to the, we shall get to the executions in turn, but the Czech Legion afterwards made their way through, through all the eastern parts of everything through America until they kind of came back later. It's, it's very weird. But even more to Trotsky's problems, the British had had seized Murmansk and Arkhangel in the north, and, by the way, they had set up governments led by socialist revolutionaries there. And a further problem in Trotsky's side, where he was trying to deal with all this civil war, which seems to go fairly well, as uh, the, the Soviets, by the end of 1917, held basically Moscow and St. Petersburg and everything between... And, and a lot of places in Siberia, but you know, all these govern, all these little forces pop up all over the place to oppose them. And uh, one of the major issues, also, which caused a lot of trouble, was the former Lord High Admiral Kolchak. He was had established relations with the Allies in an attempt to establish a United Eastern Front. And in September 1918, an organization called the Directory reminds you of anything was established in Ufa. This was a combination of various groups whose sole aim was to defeat the communists. It was made up of groups that also had few things in common with one another. Really, it was just random. And on November 18th, 1918, the social revolutionaries were pushed out of the Ufa directorate by former Tsarist officers who placed this Kolchak at their head. Also, in November 1918, on November 18th, 1918, uh, Latvia proclaimed its independence, mind you. The Ufa directorate, mind you, all of this situation that's happening in Ufa, was another huge issue because it was fund financed by the Czechs, who at this point had raided Russia's gold reserves that were stored in Kazan. And Kolchak, this Admiral Kolchak, had persuaded the Czechs that the gold could be well used for the common cause, the removal of the Bolsheviks. So, <laughs> Trotsky made his one of the biggest mistakes over there by not allowing Czechs to just go home. And, uh, you see, in early 19, this Kolchak and the forces he could group around him 
they went on the offensive. They took the city of Perm and advanced to the Volga. Kolchak could have marched on Moscow from the Volga, but for some reason he did not. The British were advancing from Arkhangelsk in the north, and a true-pronged attack against the Bolsheviks could have been successful, but it never happened. And at this point in 1919, the British just pulled out of Russia, and at this point the Whites probably lost their very best opportunity to defeat the Bolsheviks. But we shall leave this a bit hanging while while explaining why the Reds actually did win the Civil War in Russia against all of these opponents, even though they uh, never managed to acquire back all the lost territories at this point in history, because Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Finland became independent. But we'll get to this a bit later. Now back to the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which is where this, which is why the Czech Legion even materialized and caused all these huge problems for Trotsky. You see, the Germans uh, on the February 18th, 1918, start to advance. And they advance 100 miles in just four days. Everyone else is just, just freaking out by this moment. But Lenin just reconfirms that Lenin is right and the treaty is needed extremely fast. Trotsky, by this point, has, been, has dropped the idea of the workers of Germany coming to the aid of Russia. Because, holy hell, these guys are advancing in our nation. Lenin, uh, Lenin, using his superpowers of convincing everyone to just follow him blindly, has managed to sell his idea of, of peace at whatever cost in a, to, to a small majority in the party's hierarchy. But really, not, not a huge one, but just a tiny one. And there are still a lot of people, there are many people, who are still opposed to peace at any price with the Germans. But... Lenin, whatever we think about him, was a smart man, and he read the situation better than anyone else could at the time. See, the Bolsheviks had relied on the support of the average Russian soldier in 1917, and Lenin, as we saw in this call for peace decree, had promised them an end to the war. And now, he knew that the party had to deliver this peace, or face the consequences, and the consequences would probably be losing to the whites at this point. So on March the 3rd, 1918, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was signed. Under the treaty, Russia lost Riga, the capital of my country, Lithuania, old province of Livonia, Estonia, and some of White Russia. And these areas had a lot of economic importance, as they were some of the most fertile farming areas in Western Russia. Germany was allowed by the terms of the treaty to exploit these lands to support her military effort in the West. Now, obviously, all the people living in Latvia, Livonia, Estonia, and all these places, we did not really agree with this. And yeah, uh, at this point, Germans would try to, at least in Latvia, create their own sort of duchy of of, uh, our country with Andrei Sniedra in the government. And the story of the next episode will be how our our nationalistically-minded soldiers beat off both the government, the socialist, revolutionary, communist-backed government of Peter Istuchka and these German forces. And then, a man a man called Bermont Avalov, which was another crazy Russian white guy trying to set up his own little country here, and how he got independence together with the rest of the Baltic states. Because this is going to be interesting, because obviously the people living here weren't promised uh, anything by this treaty, and we had to do it on our, our own. But 
Lenin and everyone else in the Russian Russian communistic society and all these on the all this party hierarchy, they thought, you know, it was terribly harsh, but they could they could work with this. See, Lenin argued that even though the treaty was extremely, extremely, extremely tough, it freed the Bolsheviks to deal with the problems in Russia itself. And by this point, only those on extreme left of the party disagreed, and they still believed that the workers with Germany would rise up in support of them. But by March 1918, this clearly was not the case, and then Russia could devote all its time in fighting this civil war, while we, over here on the other side, devoted all our all our might and all the situation and all the, all the good things that could happen with us and all our forces into, let's see now, breaking our own weird socialist socialist government which has which had been formed here around Daugavpils with its supporters com- conducting uh, the Red Terror, Germans conducting White Terror and then Bermentavalov. But yeah, that's on the next episode. Now I want to talk a bit more about the political intricacies here. About, I want to talk about a bit more about the political intri- intricacies and in this very, very chaotic period with, you know, anti, anti-red governments and anti-red organizations popping all over Russia and the other country <laughs> popping all over Russia because we'll touch these places lost under the Brest-Litovsk Treaty in the next episode. So, back to the timeline we go. The most interesting things that happen in the 1917 at the end of this as this happens by the end of end of the day, is essentially in December the sixth. For the first time in history, Russian women, who basically ushered the era of the Russian Revolution, as we learned in the previous episode, won the right to divorce. In just three years, by the way, Russian women would again be the first in history to win the right to maternity leave of four months, along with a bunch of other rights, which would then establish the this at least formal, uh, at least this formal uh, complete gender equality there. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Weirdly enough, also, weirdly enough, in these months since this Declaration of Rights of the People in Russia, in these two months, honestly, decades happened. Because, for example, weirdly enough, on November the 5th, 1917, and remember this, Treaty of Brest-Litovsk is not yet signed, the war has not ended, and everything is just 
going crazy and everything is just uh, just starting in in uh, the Russia with this civil war and this revolution but that doesn't that doesn't stop Mr. Vladimir U- Vladimir Ulyanov as we know uh, as we know our good comrade Lenin to proclaim on the 5th of November 1917 to the population that the revolution has now been completely and utterly completely won this wasn't true, but the text is fun enough to read in, in hindsight if you think about this. <clears throat> Again, this is not a long text, so uh, I'm going to read it in full. <clears throat> Comrades, workers, soldiers, peasants, and all working people, the workers and peasants revolution has definitely triumphed in Petrograd, having dispersed or arrested the last remnants of the small number of Cossacks deceived by Kerensky. The revolution has triumphed in Moscow too. Even before the arrival of a number of troop trains dispatched from Petrograd, the officer cadets and other Kornilovites in Moscow signed peace terms, the disarming of cadets and the dissolution of the Committee of Salvation. Daily and hourly reports are coming in from the front and from the villages announcing the support of the overwhelming majority of the soldiers in the trenches and the peasants in the Uyests for the new government and its decrees of peace and the immediate transfer of the land to the peasants. The victory of the workers and peasants revolution is assured because the majority of the people have already sided with it. Which is uh, obviously not true. It is perfectly understandable that the landowners and capitalists and the top groups of office employees and civil servants closely linked with the bourgeoisie, in a word, all the wealthy and those supporting them, react to the new revolution with hostility, resist its victory, threaten to close the banks, disrupt or bring to a standstill the work of the different establishments and hamper the revolution in every way, openly or covertly. Every politically conscious worker was well aware that we would inevitably encounter resistance of this kind. The entire party press of the Bolsheviks has written about this on numerous occasions. Not for a single minute will the working classes be intimidated by this resistance. They will not falter in any way before the threats and strikes of the supporters of the bourgeoisie. The majority of the people are with us. The majority of the working and oppressed people all over the world are with us. Ours is the cause of justice. Our victory is assured. The resistance of the capitalists and the high-ranking employees will be smashed. Not a single person will be deprived of his property except under the special state law proclaiming nationalization of the banks and syndicates. This law is being drafted. Not one of the working people will suffer the loss of a kopeck. On the contrary, he will be helped. Apart from the strictest accounting and control, apart from levying the, the set taxes in the full of the government has no intention of introducing any other measure. And, and and now in the background you can just just imagine someone slow, slowly and quietly singing blatant lies. <clears throat> in support of these just demands, the vast majority of the people have rallied around the provisional workers and peasants government. Comrades, working people, remember that now you yourselves are at the helm of the state. No one will help you if you yourselves do not unite and take into your hands all affairs of the state. Your Soviets are from now on the organs of state authority, legislative bodies with full hours, with full powers. Rally around your Soviets, strengthen them, get on with the job yourselves, begin right at the bottom, do not wait for anyone. Establish the strictest revolutionary law and order, mercilessly suppress any attempts to create anarchy by drunkards, hooligans, counter-revolutionary officer cadets, Kornilovits and the like. Ensure the strictest control over production and accounting of products. Arrest and hand over to the revolutionary courts all who dare to injure the people's cause, irrespective of whether the injury is manifested in sabotaging production, damaged lane subversion, or in hoarding grain and products 
products of holding up shipments of grain, disorganizing the railways and the postal, telegraph and telephone services, or any resistance whatever to the great cause of peace, the cause of transferring the land to peasants, of ensuring workers' control over the production and distribution of products. Comrades, workers, soldiers, peasants, and all working people, take all power into the hands of your Soviets. Be watchful and guard like the apple of your lie. Your land, grain, factories, equipment, products, transport, all that from now onwards will be entirely your property, public property, gradually with the consent and approval of the majority of the peasants, in keeping with their practical experience and that of the workers, we shall go forward firmly and unswervingly to the victory of socialism, a victory that will be sealed by advanced workers of the most civilized countries bring the people's lasting peace and liberate them from all oppression and exploitation. This is just a genius text. It's a brilliant one. And all the Lenin's and Trotsky's texts from this era are just glorious. We shall not take anything away from you. You must go and find someone who's resisting in some way. Shoot him, because that's what revolutionary court means, and take his stuff. And then later we shall take your stuff in 1929 when we establish Kolhos. Cool, huh? <laughs> Weird, weirdly enough, uh, by this point in December 14th, nationalization of the banks is proclaimed. Um, obviously. And uh, in December 7th, <clears throat> the Cheka, our good old friend, and if you haven't listened to the Gulag series, uh, please do so. You'll understand why, why this is extra fun. <clears throat> the Cheka is created to combat counter-revolution and sabotage. And uh, Dzerzhinsky is appointed as a chairman. And the first charter, the first direction given to this organ is, um, guess what? Track to track the economic activity of the wealthy people. And uh, again, this is just great because uh, Mr. Lenin never spares anything because previously, as we noted, he wrote about the solidarity and about the Marxist ideas and about the like inevitability of all of this situation. But here in these texts, you can just see how... Everything goes crazy. So um, again, and I sorry, I'm, I'm sorry that I bother you with all these documents, but I just find them extremely fascinating. And uh, this is this is Vladimir Ilyich Lenin's first kind of instruction to Felix Dzerzhinsky, the first director of Cheka, which will later then become the famous KGB. So. <clears throat> Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, note to Felix Dzerzhinsky with a draft of a decree on fighting counter-revolutionaries and saboteurs. To Comrade Dzerzhinsky, further to your report today on measures for fighting saboteurs and counter-revolutionaries, would it not be possible to submit a decree um, like the following? The bourgeoisie, the landowners, and all the rich classes are making desperate efforts to undermine the revolution, the aim of which is to safeguard the interests of the workers, the working and exploited masses. The bourgeoisie are prepared to commit the most heinous crimes. They are bribing the outcast and degraded elements of society, and plying them with drink to use them in riots. The supporters of the bourgeoisie, particularly among the higher clerical staff, bank officials, and so on, are sabotaging their work and are organizing strikes to toward the government's measures for the realization of socialist reforms. Which, mind you, is exactly what happened uh, after the 1917 uh, revolution done by the socialists themselves. So, yeah. Try to combat anyone who is doing right now to us exactly the same thing which we did previously to the democratically, kind of to the the more democratic assembly of 1917 February. So, um... And so on, talking about this. They have even gone so far to sabotage fuel distribution, thereby menacing millions of people with famine. 
And here he's obviously referencing uh, to the, referring to the railway workers. But, again, and this is interesting, the real reason why Lenin really didn't combat the railway workers is that, you know, if you shoot all the railway workers, which is a very specialized task there, as railways are few and far between and are new to Russia, you will lose anyone who's basically able to provide food to these people. Because without railway workers, nothing will go on. So, they kind of, these railway workers mark a special, special kind of trend which will go on in the Soviet Union. If you aren't, if you cannot be really replaced, if, if your knowledge is unique, then you're somehow protected from the Soviet authorities and the nice people coming over to your place. But further on, <clears throat> urgent measures are necessary to fight the counter-revolutionaries and saboteurs. In virtue of this, the Council of People Commissars decrees. Number one, persons belonging to the wealthy classes, that is, with incomes of 500 rubles or more per month, and owners of urban real estate, stocks and shares, or money amounting to over 1,000 rubles, and also all employees of banks, joint stock companies, state and public institutions shall within three days present to their house committees, they had house committees back then, remember that, written statements in three copies over their own signatures and indicating their address, income, place of employment, and their occupation. Number two. The House Committee shall countersign these statements, retain one copy, and send one copy to the municipality, and other to the People's Commissariat of Internal Affairs. Number three. Persons guilty of controverting the present law, that is, failing to submit statements, giving false information, XTC, and members of House Committees infringing the regulations governing the collection, filing and presentation of these statements of the institutions mentioned above, shall be liable to a fine up to 5,000 rubles for each infringement, or to imprisonment up to one year, or shall be sent to the front, depending to the nature of the offense. Number four. Persons sabotaging the war cough or declining to work in, banks, state and public institutions, joint stocks, companies, railways, etc. shall be liable to similar punishments. As a first step towards universal labor conscription, it is decreed that the persons referred to paragraph number one shall be obliged, first, constantly to carry with them a copy of the above-mentioned statement certified by the House Committees and by their chiefs of elected officials, factory committees, food committees, railway committees, employees, trade unions, etc., the certificates must indicate what public service or work is being performed by the individual in question or whether he is living with his family as a disabled member thereof. Secondly, such persons shall be obliged to acquire within one week from the promulgation of the present law worker-consumer books, specimen attached, in which their weekly income and expenditures shall be entered together with the public duties performed by the individual in question, certified by the proper committees and institutions. And finally, persons who do not come under the paragraph number one shall present to their house committees a statement in one copy of their income and place of employment and shall carry another copy of the statement certified by the house committee. So what we see here is that, um, you know, just like later on Hitler would do with the minorities in his terrible Nazi government and everywhere, and, and just like uh, sometimes offered today, you have a special registry of the people, except this time it's the wealthy people. And sometimes not even those. I, I don't believe that all employees of banks or joint stock companies, like even if you're a secretary working there, uh, I doubt that they were extremely wealthy, but think about this. Right now we have a class of people, these so-called wealthy people and people who work in these banks, joint stock companies and all these places, they now have to carry with them... A paper stating that you please do not kill me. I am needed for the state for this reason, and I make this much money. And and uh, yeah. So now these people and, and Jerzynski is is to monitor these activities and look at them. 
and as soon as he spots that they are not they are not doing what they what they really need to be doing and they're not useful anymore well safe to say this is the beginning of KGB you can um, again listen to my series on gulags to figure out what's going on you can see why <laughs> often portraying Lenin as some sort of a nice guy is a bad idea because he orders the the peasant Soviets to just shoot people. He he says that these certain groups of people who work, who own certain properties or certain wealth, or who work in these certain services, they have to carry papers with them at all times. This is really interesting, and this is just the end of 1917. And yes, we did get the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk and, and the, the beginnings of what what are the fighting sides of the of the civil war, which is going to happen in 1918. But yeah, this is how it goes on. Now, one thing that I want to talk about uh, still today is Ukraine. Because even though in the next episode I shall cover all the Baltic states in Finland, Ukraine in this situation deserves a special mention. So, we've gotten over to some basic aspects, but Ukraine deserves a special mention here as it's really a tragic story ahead of us. You see, Ukraine is important because um, because of actually what's happening today and the Russian claims that it was always a part of Russia and all these things. But this is much more complicated than this. You see, Ukraine has a special, very specific situation, interesting, interesting things going on there during this period that we're talking about. And right now that period is, again, a night, again, basically... 1917-1918, because, you see, in 19, in the end of 1917, weird things happen. For example, uh, in December the 3rd, the Central Party Committee recognized the right of Ukraine to secede unconditionally without reservations, but Ukrainian Rada, however, refuses to allow Ukrainian Soviets to meet and hold a congress. And the CPC informs the Rada that it, with, it, that it either allow democracy or consider itself in a war with Russia. But, later, in December 25th, the first All-Ukraine Congress of Soviets, which happened because the Rada had to agree with this, declares Ukraine a Soviet Socialist Republic, which was still, though independent from Russia, and disavows the Rada. The, Ruk- the Ukrainian Soviets, along with Russian Red Guards, would then later successfully defeat the Rada on January 26th, 1919, and so Ukraine would become a Soviet Socialist Republic under, basically, control of the Russian Communists and wouldn't enjoy the independence that the Baltic states and Finland did enjoy in these times, but the story is much more different. You see, during the outbreak of the World War One, and when the hostilities between Russia and Austria-Hungary began, this whole thing, this whole war, had immediate, very serious repercussions for the Ukrainian subjects of both powers. And this is weird. <clears throat> Because in the Russian Empire, Ukrainian publications and cultural organizations were completely suppressed. And the, all the prominent figures, like all, all the central cultural forces, were arrested and exiled. And as Russian forces advanced into Gal- Galicia in September, <laughs> the retreating Austrians executed thousands for suspected pro-Russian sympathies. After occupying Galicia, Tsarist authorities started to take steps towards its total incorporation of the Russian Empire. Because 
Ukraine used to be autonomous region, because Ukrainians are a separate nation, really. They're not Russians. The Tsarists then had prohibited the Ukrainian language, closed down institutions, and had prepared to liquidate the Greek Catholic Church there. The Russification campaign was shot, uh, cut short by the Austrian reconquest in spring 1915. Western Ukraine, however, continued to be a theater of these military operations there, and suffered greatly from this war. Now closer to our timeline, when the revolution in February 1917 brought into power the provisional government, which then introduced freedom of speech and assembly and lifted a lot of Tsarist restrictions on minorities, national life in Ukraine became, again, very active there, because they, it saw a revival of Ukrainian press and the formation of, of a lot of cultural and professional associations and political parties. In March 1917, on the initiative of these new organizations, the Central Rada, and Rada means council here, was formed in Kiev as a Ukrainian representative body, because by this point, Ukraine was always an autonomous autonomous district until these, these actions by the Tsarist army, and they decided that, hey, what, what about Ukrainians? Ukrainians should, should be the head guys in this land instead of, you know, Tsarist empire, which is collapsing anyways. So, in the April of the same year, the more, more broadly convened Old Ukrainian National Congress declared this Central Rada to be the highest national authority in Ukraine, and they elected the historian Mikhailo Khrushchevsky as its, its chief. The stated goal of this Central Rada was territorial autonomy for the Ukraine and the transformation of Russia into a democratic federative republic. And even though this provisional government, which will be then later overthrown by Bolsheviks, as you know, recognized Ukraine's right to autonomy and the Central Rada's legitimate representative body, there obviously were disputes about its territorial jurisdiction and what should it do politically. Locally, especially in the now Russified cities done by the Tsar of eastern Ukraine, and you might by now understand why this is important, because eastern Ukraine, where the separatists are now, these places were intentionally russified by a lot of terrible actions of the Tsar. The Rada also had to compete with the, again, increasingly radical Soviets of workers and soldiers' deputies, whose support in the major population of other places was quite limited. And if you think about it right now, this is how it is. That part had been intentionally Sovietized and always, always had support for these workers and soldiers' deputies. Again, I have an episode of this, but I just thought this important because of this episode. Now, after the Bolshevik coup, which we spoke about last episode and carry on doing this now, Ukrainian-Russian relations deteriorated completely and rapidly. The Central Rada refused to accept the new regime's authority over Ukraine, and on November 20, on the 1917, proclaimed the creation of Ukrainian National Republic. Even though, still in federation with the new democratic Russia, that was sort of expected to emerge, for, emerge from this con, con, constituent assembly, which never happened, obviously. So Bolsheviks took over, and in turn, Ukrainian Bolsheviks, uh, supported by the Russian central authorities, obviously, at the first All-Ukrainian Congress of Soviets, held in Kharkov in December. And again, uh, if you remember from the timeline, which you just mentioned, it was held only because the Russians threatened Ukraine with open war, if it wouldn't happen. They declared Ukraine to be a Soviet Republic in, in December and formed this rival government. 
In January 1918, these Bolsheviks launched an offensive in the left bank and advanced on to Kiev. The Central Rada, which was already engaged in peace negotiations with central powers, separately from the, from the Russians, because they didn't consider them to be even a part of this anymore, uh, for, for also from whom it has hoped for some military assistance, they proclaimed their total independence of Ukraine in January 22nd. And now, this this is interesting, because, uh, like I said, uh, this comes from the timeline, and I started with the timeline again, and moved on to this, because some documents state that in November 20th, the Ukrainian rather de- declares itself an independent nation. But, my other source, and, and this comes from the nice Marxist timeline that I'm using, and from my Russian sources. Like, the timeline in Russian says that this happens in November the 20th. Meanwhile, the online encyclopedia Britannica says that total independence was being proclaimed in January 22nd. So Ukrainian National Republic isn't total independence. It's all very, very strange. And this should really help to illustrate the strangeness and chaoticness of what's going on there. On the same day, by the way, on January 22nd, this Ukrainian Rada passes a law establishing a national autonomy for the Ukraine's Jewish, Russian, and Polish minorities. Almost immediately, however, the government has to evacuate to the right bank as the Soviet troops occupy occupy Kiev. On February 9th, the Ukraine and Central Powers signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. <laughs> Again, this is another Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. So, a German-Austrian offensive dislodges the Bolsheviks from Kiev in early March, and the Rada government returns to their capital. In the April of 1918, the Red Army retreats from Ukraine. But the socialist policies of the Ukrainian government, especially the nationalization of land, conflicts with the interest of German high command to maximize the production of foodstuffs for its own war effort. Again, remember the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk states that they can use these territories to, to basically... They can use these territories and resources from these territories to strengthen their war effort. Like, these countries are not given away to Germany, but the Germans have the rights to use them. Germans have the rights to exploit them. And unlike in uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, Ukraine is one of these territories which is really, really, really mega fertile. This is, this is the center. These are the fertile white Russia territories which are super important. Because Ukraine is the breadbasket, and later would be the breadbasket of the Soviet Russia. And that's why they suffered so much in Holdomor later, which we'll obviously get on to. So, on April 29th, 1918, after its defeat on, on January, on the April 29th, 1918, the Rada government was then overthrown in the German-supported coup by General Pavlo Skoropadsky, who happened to be a collateral descendant of an 18th century Cossack hetman. He assumed the title Hitman of Ukraine, which, by the way, he intended to become like hereditary and sort of monarchy to be established here. He stopped all laws passed. He stopped and cancelled all laws passed by the Rada and established a conservative regime that relied on support of landowners and the largely Russian urban middle class. The new government had a, a faced immense political opposition among, amongst Ukrainian nationalists, socialists, and the peasantry. And to coordinate some political opposition to this new, very German government, 
And again, uh, this will happen in the next episode, but the Germans try to do something like this in Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania too. And we struggled against this. And successfully struggled against this, mind you. And to coordinate this opposition to this, the Ukrainian National Union is, is formed there by the main parties and organizations running around there. While the peasants manifested their hostility through basically rebellions and partisan warfare against this one. And the capitulation of Germany and Austria in November basically removed the main support from the Skoropadsky's regime, and the Ukrainian National Form, National Union formed the directory of the Ukrainian National Republic to prepare for his overthrow of this regime. In a bid for the support of the Allied powers, Skoropadsky announced his intention to join in federation with the future non-Bolshevik Russia, triggering an uprising. On December 14, 1918, this hetman abdicated, and this newfound directory of people who just oppressed, uh, who just opposed this clearly pro-German government, which had no backing by now, they assumed control of government in Kiev. Again, it's the directory. Fun, fun. But they still support the whites, mind you. <clears throat> now, even before this collapse of uh, Austria-Hungary, an assembly of Western Ukrainian political leaders in October 1918 declared the formation of a state shortly thereafter named the Western Ukrainian National Republic embracing Galicia, northern Bukovina, and Transcarpathia. On November the 1st, Ukrainian forces occupied Lviv. Now, this act was a bit of a mistake, because uh, this touched off a war with the Poles, who were themselves resolved to incorporate Galicia into a reconstituted Polish state. And by reconstituted Polish state, we mean something like a commonwealth. Because this will, again, happen in the future, but uh, this is this is the reason why Lithuanians and Poles don't have as friendly relationships as they had before, since even though Lithuania got its independence, the Poles trying to trying to recreate their previous huge government there, their, their get back their territories, they didn't return modern day capital of Lithuania, Vilnius, to Lithuanians until actually the Soviets occupied all these lands and just restored this. Uh, in the interwar periods, independent Lithuania's capital was Kaunia, which has caused a lot of uh, content- which has caused a lot of kind of troubles between two governments on, on, and two, two peoples there. Even though they're still kind of friendly, obviously, we're all friendly here in the Baltics, this, this is kind of a sl- the Lithuanians consider this to be of a bit of a slight towards them by the Polish. But yeah, the Poles took Lviv in number November 21st, but most of Galicia remained under Ukrainian control. And this government, headed now by Yevhen Petrushevich, transferred its seat to Stanislav, which is now called Ivano-Franskivsk. And on January 22nd, 1919, an act of union of the two Ukrainian states was proclaimed in Kiev, but actual integration of these two states right now, West Ukraine, East Ukraine was prevented by the ongoing hostilities there. And by late July, the Poles were in full control of Galicia. Petrusevich and his government evacuated the right bank Ukraine, and in, the, and in the autumn went into exile to Vienna, where they continued diplomatic efforts against the recognition of the Polish occupation. In Kiev, the directory that had taken power in December 1918, which was initially headed by Volodymyr Vinchenko, and from February 1919 by Simon Petlura, who was also the commander-in-chief, they officially restored the Ukrainian National Republic 
and revived legislation of the Central Rada, which, has been taken, which had been taken there after the revolution. They tried to establish some sort of effective-looking administration that would actually run, and they were trying to cope with the mounting economical and social problems, but all of this was stopped by, again, an increasingly chaotic domestic situation and a very hostile foreign environment all the situation. Because, think about it, there's a massive Soviet civil war, and Soviets still think that you're a part of them, and then Poles try to invade you, and everything's just going haywire from there on. So, the peasants become restless, and the army has de- become demoralized. Partisan mov- movements were essentially by that point led by unruly, unruly kind of warlords, kind of, um, the word would be Ataman, um, that it calls back to the Cossack days, and all these, all these partisan movements and various warlords with their interests, and all this escalates just in scope, uh, in scope and complete violence. In addition, a huge irregular force emerges who just also try to carve their own path of Ukraine and this big country, and this <laughs> emerges ar- under the command of a very, very interesting leader, quite charismatic one, Nestor Machno. And he was he was named, by the way, this Nestor Machno. He was named after a monk of in Kiev and Rus, uh, and and he was author of a works of hagiography and important kind of chronicles of history. But yeah, it's kind of weird that uh, this uh, main anarchist leader was, is is taking on the name of this this monk. So in in many places, this new government's authority is just nominal and non-existent. The Allied powers including France, by the way, whose expeditionary force held Odessa, uh, supported the Russian whites, whose army was uh, grouping around General Anton Denikin in southern Russia. Again, one of the major forces in the main conflicts where Trotsky led all this situation. But, yeah, like I said, as, as this authority, as government authority breaks down in Ukraine, and there is no central authority by this point, it's just that it, it exists only on paper and nothing goes on really as intended, random violence increases. And, sadly, in particular, a ferocious wave of pogroms happen again. The Jewish population is decimated and tens of thousands of people are being dead there. The majority of the pogroms occurred in 1919, and they were perpetrated by virtually all the groups fighting in the territory of Ukraine, trying to get the powers in their own hands, irregular or irregular, including the directory troops, the Atamani, the white forces, and the Red Army, of course, as well as, obviously, civilians from peasant and landowning classes. You see, during the war and during complete chaos, of course, everyone, again, always blames the Jews. So why not? Stating, especially knowing the, see, the white forces and Atamari and the directory basically did this because of more nationalistic reasons, the, the Red Army did this because of the new Jarzinski's orders and the way how they hated wealthy people, and in Ukraine, Jews were mostly in the wealthy class, uh, being, trader, being traitors and the like. So yeah, Jews are not spared here. Massive programs happen. But, when, uh, as, as, as long as this happens, there's still a new offensive. And why Red Army comes into this. You see, the Bolsheviks had already launched a new offensive in eastern Ukraine in December 1918. In February 1919, they again seized Kiev. The rectory again moves to the right bank and continues the whole this struggle thing. In May, Denikin, this white general, launches his campaign against the Bolsheviks in the left bank and his progress westward 
through Ukraine was marked by complete white terror. Because the weirdest part of all of this, and uh, as I mentioned in the recent Lester Bonaparte episode, revolutions are terrible. And whenever I speak of red terror, don't forget that white terror existed there as well. They caused pogroms, and if you supported nationalism in your countries, you wanted independence, like self-determination of peoples. That's what I mean by nationalism at this point. I I have to clear this one up. But, you know, if you support the self-determination, capitalism, democratic ideas, and if you want to become more Western and and you just want want to be left alone, you don't want to be part of this huge empire and all of this, and you, you want to privately own your own lands and stuff, and... And, and you're, you're all for, like, normal democratic government, then you're a victim of red terror. And and if you, for some reason, have decided that, hey, maybe, maybe you know, I can't fight the reds, and I'm, I'm going to work with this government a bit, and, you know, just to survive and, and keep something for my family, the white terror comes in, and you're slaughtered by the other side, which is, more more often than not, constituted by some completely weird monarchistic people, which also tends to be strange. It's, it's, the Ukraine just poses a very complicated image and kind of serves as a mirror in everything that's going on here. Because the situation, again, is, is extremely complex, and by no means I think the whites were completely in the red there. Even though, even though the Nikin restores gentry land, land ownership, but he destructs all manifestations of Ukrainian national life. He's a white Russian general, he seeks to establish control over all of Russian empire, he cannot even fathom the idea that Ukraine might be independent. That is how whites operated, too. Gentry land ownership is great, but, you know, land ownership is being restored to the Russian nobles here, not to the Ukrainians themselves. Though, the Ukrainians soon again withdrew to avoid overt hostilities with the whites with whom they were nominally, nominally allied. Then, of course, soon it turned into crazy warfare, because from September to December, the Ukrainian army and by Ukrainian army I mean this new Ukrainian Republic which is just nominally there and has some control with all these other forces running around, they they, they start fighting with the Deacon. But they lost ground and began a retreat northwestward into Volinia. There, the Poles confront them in the west. And the returning Red Army confront them in the north. And the Whites confront them in the south. At that point, the Ukrainian forces of this government completely just... They, they stop being a unified army. They, they they can no longer conduct regular military operations, and they turn to guerrilla warfare. In December, Petlura went on Warsaw to seek outside support. At the same time, the Bolsheviks are now beating back the Nikin's forces, and on December 16, they recaptured Kiev. By February 1920, the Whites had been expelled from Ukrainian territories. Petlura's negotiations with the Polish government of Józef Pilsudski, which shall, by the way, become very important later, remember the name Pilsudski, he's a great guy, and he'll manage to basically ensure Polish interwar independence. And all this culminates in the Treaty of Warsaw, signed in, 19, uh, signed in April 1920. And by the terms of this agreement, in return for Polish military aid, Petlura surrendered Ukraine's claim to Galicia and Western Volinia. A Polish-Ukrainian campaign opened two days later, and on May 6th the joint forces occupied Kiev. A counteroffensive mounted by the Bolsheviks brought them to the outskirts of Warsaw in August. The heads of war turned once again as the Polish and Ukrainian armies drove back the Soviets, much thanks to Pilsudski, and re-entered the right bank, 
In October, however, Poland made a truce with the Soviets, and in March 1921, the Polish and Soviet signed, uh, Polish and Soviet signed, signed Treaty of Riga. Yes, by this point, in 1921... Riga and Lat- Latvia is already an independent government. They will sign them. Their Latvians will sign their own separate peace treaty with the Soviets uh, at a later point. But this treaty of Riga is basically conducted by the mediation of Latvian diplomats. And according to this treaty, Poland extended recognition to Soviet Ukraine. You know, there is the Soviet part of Ukraine, and then there is the annexed Western Ukrainian lands, which they kept. So. This is how the story of uh, independent Ukraine, independent Ukraine, really ends. So, the territories under Bolshevik control were formally recognized as the Ukrainian Socialist Soviet Republic, and this government, the Soviet government, basically was in the nineteen uh, formed after the Treaty of Riga, was basically the continuation of the Soviet Ukrainian government declared by the old Ukrainian Congress of Soviets. And this is how it really happened. With the consolidation of Bolshevik rule, Soviet Ukraine progressively ceded to Russia its rights in such areas as foreign relations and foreign trade. On December 30, 1922, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, a federation of Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and the Transcaucasian Soviet Federated Socialist Republic, SFSR, was proclaimed, thus completely cutting off all all attempts of sovereignty from the Ukraine. And weirdly enough, in late 1920, Ukrainians themselves constituted less than 20% of the Communist Party, Communist or Bolshevik Party of Ukraine's membership. Largely, all the Bolsheviks weren't Ukrainians. They were aliens from Ukrainians' nationality. They were they were ideologically supportive, even though they supported the proletariat, which were a lot of Ukrainian peasants. They enjoyed very scant support in the population. That was 80% Ukrainian of their territory of the Soviet Ukraine, of which 90% of which more than 90% were peasants. They were the Communist Party of Ukraine. Obviously, was being a subordinate to Moscow. It was overwhelmingly non-Ukrainian in ethnic composition, and at the time of its founding in 1917, mind you, and this fact I wanted to leave for last, at the point where the Communist Party of Ukraine, in this all-Ukraine Congress of Soviets on December 25, 1917, when this Congress declares Ukraine a Soviet Socialist Republic, the Communist Party of Ukraine has 5,000 members, about 5,000 members in a nation of millions, and only 7% of them were Ukrainian. This again shows the roots of how the Soviet Union will, op- will operate later. Because from all this chaos, a neat system of governance and oppression and uh, <laughs> centralization will occur. Democracy, yeah, the democracy thing from the democratic centrism, that shall be tossed out pretty soon. How soon? Well... We'll talk about this in the future. In the next episode, about more positive things. About how the Baltics got their independence. And about Finland and the Monarchy line. See you next time, comrades. And thank you for listening.
Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to Quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.